welcome to the Brand New Podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm Jordan Valerie, Chief Policy Strategist at BNC. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by two wonderful undocumented artists who are here to discuss immigration and the Abolish ICE movement with us. Hi, my name is Yosimar Reyes. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And I am a poet. Hi there, um, my name's Aldai. Uh, I work as a graphic designer, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Thank you both for coming. So a few months back, Brand New Congress officially released our comprehensive immigration reform platform, which included ICE abolition. For any listeners who might not be familiar, ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is an agency belonging to the Department of Homeland Security that serves as the federal government's deportation force. Brand new Congress is calling for the wholesale abolition of ICE. Now, in immigration conversations, we often hear politicians talk about the economy or crime or border security, but almost never the real human impact immigration policy has, not just on those who qualify for, say, DACA, but all undocumented Americans. Yosemar, could you tell us about the impact ICE has on undocumented Americans and how ICE shapes the undocumented experience in the United States. I think the history of ICE uh, is something that I that I it's something that we haven't really explored, and I think it's very interesting that ICE was actually a department that was born post 9/11, and I think since then. Um, we have seen the way in which undocumented people have kind of been scapegoated to make the larger American population believe that the problems that we have in the country are because of undocumented people. I myself as an undocumented person um, have seen the rise of how these policies are heavily racialized and how um, now that we're talking about immigration and immigration reform, we're not necessarily talking the racial aspect of what it means to be undocumented and the fact that most of the immigration policy that we are proposing currently, it's only to benefit white supremacy in that way that we're like kind of creating policies that are excluding immigrants that are coming from black and brown countries and i think right now we're seeing a huge push to deport people at a higher rate so i think for me it's very interesting just the racial aspects of how ice was developed yeah and just to i mean just to echo um you'll see it hasn't been around for super long but in the time that it has been around, especially now, you can see the ways in which um, they sort of function in their own, with their own rules, right? There, There's a lot of illegal stuff happening with ICE. And you hear these cases a lot. Here in Portland, anyway, um, the ACLU of Oregon, there was a, a situation where one of their members actually caught a whole situation on tape um, and was able to unmask a little bit of their, like, not wearing a badge and not naming who they are and completely profiling someone who wasn't even the person they were looking for you know so that's only one thing that was actually caught on tape but there's there's so many of these situations that happen every day where you know if the person's not heavily involved in their community it's just goes unnoticed that's such an important point because deportation is such a hidden process in the united states we have some videos of people being arrested but detainment and deportation are very purposefully kept out of sight so that they can remain out of mind to anyone who doesn't directly interact with ICE or Border Patrol. 
And that's why it's so essential to center how the immigration system hurts and affects undocumented Americans. What is the psychological impact of deportation on undocumented and immigrant communities? I think right now, what I'm, you know, in my work as a poet and as a writer, I definitely been working a lot to kind of create a counter narrative to these kind of fear-based narratives that we have with undocumented people specifically because I am really aware of the mental the mental burden that we're placing on undocumented people because I just imagine the way in which an undocumented mother has to go to work and she just finished watching an ice raid that happened on you know that somebody documented it on TV you know I'm just thinking of that and also like of, of kids whose parents were deported and the way they have to now face you know uh, their li- a, a new life and I think for me as a poet and as a writer I want to start developing work that helps alleviate that a little bit and presents a different narrative a different reminder but I think yeah it's definitely something imagine your your whole existence being that you're hun- you're being haunted right somebody's looking for you or they're coming for you and you just don't the uncertainty of, of it all is what what I think gets to a lot of us and I think for me myself uh, as an undocumented person, oftentimes I have to find myself enjoying the day to day because I don't know what the fu- this future is so uncertain that I don't necessarily want to plan thinking too much ahead without enjoying the present. And I think that's the predicament in which we, we know we don't have the luxury of planning a future. Yeah, I think that as far as mental health goes, um, when it comes to ICE, it's a very real um, thing that I only, at least in the last year, was able to sort of touch on because it wasn't a fear that I was even aware that I was having, but a fear for for authority, for police, for people in uniforms. Um, and a friend of mine um, who's also undocumented is working on a zine series. And the, the last one that she put out is... Um, called mental health in the undocumented community and she invited folks to submit you know poetry or artwork or whatever um and the piece that i wrote i realized while i was writing it how actually intense it is to be living um with this fear you know i i have experienced tremendous amounts of sleep paralysis and like hypnopompia which i had to research what it was but um all sort of based off of this fear of there's going to be a knock at the door or I have to close my blinds or I have to make sure to lock things because I don't know who is going to show up and, you know, um, try to take me away. Um, same is true for going into work. Um, I have a whole plan at my workplace in case ice shows up. Um, and it's, it's crazy, but that I have to do that, but you can, you kind of just have to when, when the fear is, is so very much there. So that's something we've seen get a lot more attention under Trump and there's, this sense that ICE has become crueler. And while there may be some validity in that, the sentiment is, I I think, a bit misplaced and ahistorical. It was actually President Obama who was nicknamed deporter-in-chief by undocumented activists. It was President Obama who deported more undocumented Americans than any other president in history. Yosemar, you mentioned earlier how ICE is a tool of white supremacy. Could you expand upon that more? How was ICE intended to work? What was its fundamental purpose? And how does it carry out that purpose regardless of who's sitting in the Oval Office? 
I think its sole purpose is to kick brown people out. And I think it's very interesting to kind of see the way in which you go to their website and, you know, like the, the people they the people they claim to be deporting are people with criminal backgrounds and all that. And I think it feeds into this idea that undocumented people go hand in hand with with crime. And I think that's the kind of idea that it becomes easier to deport people when we criminalize them in that way because people don't feel a sort of sort of empathy for the criminal right and what we're seeing what we don't know a lot is that most of those people that get deported you know a crime can be driving without a license and missing a stop sign you know simple things you make the conditions so bad that people don't have you know no other option than than, than to break the law i think yeah its sole purpose is definitely keeping those those, those immigrants out and you know they, they happen to be brown and black yeah i think jesse has some good points again um i i feel like it's always been there i mean i think we're all pretty aware that the racism has always been there and the racial profiling with police but it is very true that in the last year with like the whole trump administration taking over how heightened that's become and how there's more of a push to get rid of people of color and and yossi's right in that you know once you're labeled a criminal there's no you know, there's no mercy for you. It's just kind of the way that it's always been. And so that's sort of the work that needs to be undone. And, you know, abolishing ICE would be amazing, but like undoing the this idea that, that undocumented, like Yossi said, goes hand in hand with, with criminal. Yeah, for sure. And I think at the core of this problem is the fact that the United States has made it so hard to immigrate, quote unquote, legally. There's this misunderstanding that it's easy to immigrate legally, so undocumented people are just being lazy and breaking the law. What is the reality of the immigration system? You know what? I think that's the most annoying thing that I get from a lot of people. And I've done like kind of, you know, I've been, I've been doing this work for a while. And I think there's always that one person that feels they're immigration experts when they don't even know anything about immigration. Um, and, you know, the beautiful thing about Google is that you can type things up and you get the answers. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, our, our immigration system is broken and whatnot. But for me, as an undocumented person, I'm like, no, it is functional. Functioning. It, it was created to work in this way in which you're let, you know, and we look at the history of immigration, how turbulent the history of immigration has been with this country when with coming concerning people of color. You know, you see the Chinese Exclusion Act to Japanese internment camps like this. There's always been a racialized group that has been seen as disposable. So I think for a lot of people that, you know, always at, tell me like, oh, you should just get in line. I, I, I. You know, uh, for me, it's more like you should just Google the basic facts of immigration and the fact that there is no line and why we're advocating for immigration reform is because we want to create a pathway for people who were displaced by foreign policy to have a way to find home and build a better future. Yeah, there's a, a really one of the biggest things that folks can do is, yeah, do some research and educate themselves on why there are 12 million undocumented people in the United States, right? It's not that, um, you know, we all are just like bad people. It, it's that there's a reason why people felt the need to leave their country. And, and a huge part of that is because of the U.S. itself um, and other countries that sort of come in and, and push us out of our own places. And so, I mean, I'm thinking specifically like my father who 
applied for citizenship. I must have been three at the time. I'm 27. And, you know, the idea was that he would get his citizenship when I turned 18. That's what we were all, that's what I was always looking forward to. Um, and then I turned 18 and nothing happened. And, and it just kind of kept going and going. And eventually he was able to, to become a permanent resident through, through my brother who sponsored him when he turned 21. But there's a, there's a whole application process that, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, it, it can take decades. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't have that kind of time. You know, I, I don't, I can't plan my life like that to like hope that, you know, one day I'll, I'll, I'll get this like document. Um, so it becomes incredibly difficult and conflicting to, you know, live, live in a country that you call home in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, doesn't necessarily feel the same about you, about you as a resident or you as somebody who is contributing to the community or just somebody who exists and is there and has been there for a long time. I'm really glad you made that last point because there's this belief, this widespread belief that undocumented Americans are only valuable if they quote unquote contribute, if they check off all these perfect boxes, if they're educated, if they have no criminal record, if they've done community service, etc. And that's really what DACA is based upon and to a lesser but still very significant extent the DREAM Act. Could you tell us how these narratives affect undocumented Americans and your sense of worth in the United States? Yeah, I think like what's interesting to me as someone that, you know, I started doing this work like back in 2006 with the first, I was like in high school going to like this, like the May 1st marches here in California. And what's interesting to me is the way in which we have commodified undocumented people, meaning like uh, we, there's only three storylines that you'll see, um, and it's interesting the way we're frameworked, right? Even our stories are channeled and are edited and molded to kind of pacify white anxiety. So we're still existing under this white supremacist paradigm because if we look like people that are giving and contributing and and if we look like people that follow the rules and the laws, you know, white people want to hug us more, you know, or, you know, they want to give us rights. And I think what was interesting to me now that I'm older as an undocumented person is how tiring that is and how what the burden on undocumented people is, right? And what you lose in the aspect of trying to fulfill all these kind of achievements or, or boxes that America wants you to be. Um, and it just gets tiring. And I think what what i find very interesting in the stories that we tell about undocumented people they're based on an on exceptionalism so meaning you got to go through hurdles and get medals and awards in order to be considered a human being and i think that in itself um it's something that you know in the end also goes back to mental health and a lot of people undocumented people might feel small or inadequate or that they haven't worked enough or that they're not worthy of basic respect and for me like what i find more interesting is like letting undocumented people just simply be and the sad part about being undocumented is that we become we became politicized like our identities it's not even our identity because being undocumented is not an identity our social conditioning became a kind of politicized tool so now when people automatically think that if you're pro 
uh, undocumented people, somehow you're a Democrat or a liberal. But as a matter of fact, most undocumented people are too busy trying to survive to really care about politics or to become involved in that way. You know, undocumented people just want to be left alone and want to be, you know, be able to work and provide their families. So I think what I want to see is the how do we pull away and not politicize the undocumented condition the way it's been because we're we up till now I don't think undocumented people have been agents of their own narratives so that's what I want to see I have a really um gigantic admiration for Yosimad. I've been following him for what, like a year, maybe <laughs> everything that he puts out to me makes so much sense. And, and I, you know, growing up felt a ton of guilt being undocumented. It's this like heavy, heavy guilt feeling like I did something really wrong. It's been really cool to, to watch this movement happen on social media online, because then I get to meet really dope people like Yosimad. Um, who are very vocal and, and encourages me to become vocal. One of the first speeches that I gave at a rally, I remember one of the other speakers was talking about, we're doctors, we're lawyers, we're da-da-da. And like, while all that is great, you know, I kept thinking like, why the fuck does that matter? You know, like some of us aren't. Um, some of us work as artists. Some of us work in food service. Some of us, you know, so th there's no, I guess I just started to see that, yeah, that does exist. There's this, there's this thing, this way that we could present that makes it much more palatable to Americans or white folks, you know, like, I deserve to be here, like that sort of feeling. And, and I, I have been following Yossi's lead and, and sort of getting away from a narrative that makes me feel like I'm asking for something and more so presenting myself as someone who, aside from all of the shit that gets thrown at you, like Yossi has said, like, we are still here and we're still existing and, and, and that is enough. And I don't need to prove myself to you. Could you explain to us how exactly DACA and the DREAM Act embrace the harmful, exceptional immigrant good versus bad immigrant narrative and what the difference is between DACA and the DREAM Act? Well, the DREAM Act has definitely been something that was introduced back in 2001. And basically, it's bas it was basically this idea, something that advocated for undocumented immigrants that were brought here as children to kind of form a pathway to legalization because that basic idea is basically you're brought here as a child you went to school here you learned the language you haven't really gone back to where you come from so you don't know the country that you left and so in essence because you were brought up in this culture then you are in fact american and you graduated in college so basically was a, a that was going to open a pathway to be legalized for those young people but i think over the over time you know another one got introduced in 2000 and whatever 10 12 like it's been and the, uh, every time it got edited into something you know they added a military component and every time it, it became different to the point that at the end it just dissolved and nothing happened and out of that of those efforts is where we got daca which is deferred action for childhood arrivals which is basically a lot of people think it's amnesty but it's not basically it's you pay the government $500 every two years they give you a work permit and they protect you from and you're safe from deportation so basically you're paying the government to not deport you and through that it's something that Obama, Obama signed to kind of become competitive in the job market and, and work in their careers that they that that they studied for Yossi's right it did go through so many renditions and never passed I think over 10 different versions of the DREAM Act were brought to Congress and never was it passed. Um, and so, yes, eventually DACA came around. Um, when DACA came out, you know, I 
I avoided it for six months. I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Um, I felt really nervous about giving the government my information. Eventually I did it. Um, I'm glad that I did because it changed a lot of the things that I do now, um, the sort of work that I'm able to do because of DACA. However, um, I think it's important to note that it, it was always a temporary fix. Um, it was never a solution. And so what we were seeing after DACA was taken away last September and there was a really big push to pass the DREAM Act, um, it was people that have been fighting for the DREAM Act for a very long time saying like, hey, this is the solution. This is the solution we've been asking for forever. And, and now that there's enough attention and media around this, this is the time to do it, right? And so, I mean, the DREAM Act itself would at least, you know, give us a path to citizenship. Currently with DACA, um, like Josie said, there's no there's no path for that. There's no, It's not amnesty. It is a card that allows you to work legally um, for two years and then it expires and then you pay again and you keep doing that. So, I mean, it's helpful, but it's not necessarily what what we need. What effect do the DREAM Act and DACA have on undocumented Americans who don't qualify, who don't check off all the boxes that supposedly make them worthy? I think that was the most heartbreaking thing for me, you know, because, you know, I... One of the things that I'm also doing within the work that I'm doing is trying to uplift undocumented elders, because right now what we're doing within um, the undocumented space is that we're seeing a way in which we're elongating the process. Right. So if something were to pass, you know, I wouldn't be eligible for citizenship until I'm 45. So it's not like a nomadic, you know, thing that's going to happen. And I'm just going to, you know, from uh, one day to another, I've already become a citizen. Like it's a very elongated process. In, in doing that and for me the reason that I want to elevate this conversation the stories of undocumented elders is because I was raised by my grandmother and I think when DACA happened she was super excited that I was able to or I was going to be able to work and then for me you know we've kind of lived parallel lives and if anything, she's more deserving of that because she's worked all her life in this country and still managed to survive. And, you know, she's left out of the conversation. So I think that was really heartbreaking. And it's also heartbreaking for the people who didn't come. You know, there's certain requirements within the DACA to qualify for DACA. And I think that created kind of, it created a, a, a subcategory of undocumented people in which now you're you you're also navigating the guilt of like now I don't really have a status but I have this thing that you know I could use to my benefit and to move forward but it, it, I think it's just creating these kind of subdivisions within the larger undocumented population. Yeah, I think that DACA when it first came into existence uh, definitely broke you know, the community a little bit into the folks that are able to apply and the folks that are not. And that's that's really damaging because there was such a cutoff, you know. And so I think that the biggest thing that I am sort of aiming to do now is not so much focus on DACA. Like I will talk about DACA and I will talk about it all the time. I'll talk about being undocumented all the time. Um, but I, I want to start focusing on um, the parents and, and the, the older generations who never had DACA and it was never an option. I want to talk about how it is that we can like uplift those folks as well. Because, you know, if you look at history, 
um, and you can educate yourself on the history of immigration in the United States and the way that it's abused other countries, then you can sort of understand that like, you know, people made choices that they needed to make. And that's that. I have a hard time with people criminalizing the parents or, 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 or even, you know, there's even DACA folks or DACA recipients and and people that became citizens who who throw their parents under the bus you know and say well it wasn't my choice to come here um which is like fine but but you you know that's (laughs) to me that's just creating a bigger gap um and and i i I would never blame my parents i i think that they're incredibly strong and, and they're heroes for doing what they what they needed to do because of the situation they were sort of cornered into. I think that, yes, there's there's a lot that can be done to sort of change the narrative, not just for DACA folks and not just for us that are younger and can, you know, um, maybe can communicate easier with, with America today, but, but even for the older generations who, who don't, who never had that option um, and, and being able to sort of tell the story from a broader perspective. So something we hear from Democrats and Republicans alike is that our immigration system is broken. But Yosemar, you said earlier that the immigration system is actually functioning as it was intended to. It's meant to use immigrants of color as disposable, deportable labor. Could you elaborate on how this system works and how this moment fits into the United States' record on immigration policy? Yeah, I think for me it's just very interesting because we praise ourselves on having all these liberties in this country, right? Uh, That we can, you know, protest, that we can march, that we can advocate for one another, that we have rights and all these things. And I think there's a, a historical amnesia that happens with people that are America first and all that because we forget the fact that the reason we have those rights and the reason we're able to sit at the same counter table or the reason we're able to go into the same schools is because of the work and the lives of people of color and the contributions specifically black people have have made um, this country to be what it is and i think that erasure that happens maybe it's because we're you know the history that we're learning likes to go dwell into that and i think until the united states is able to face this turbulent history and able to acknowledge like listen we were funded on white supremacy and we've done these horrible things until then we're never really gonna have a system that views people of color immigrants as full human beings and i think right now what's happening even the i think the racism is in the coded language right we hear where like make america great again uh, uh, america first like it's this coded racism in which we become very nationalistic but we also don't we don't like to face the fact that we are bombing other countries that we have we have foreign policies that's creating like an economic imperialism like you know like colonialism is it's working in that way that the people that were colonized are migrating to the places that colonized them um and that's in, you know that's in an, uh, something that's going to be inedible it's like when you throw a rock into the water these are the ripple effects of what's happening because you are dominating our cultures you know uh, 
so yeah i think we really need to think about in that way and the sad things about the united states is that we don't really like to think in a global perspective and the 12 million undocumented people that exist in this country are connected to a global phenomenon that's happening in which most people you can see this in europe right that where they're trying to kick people out um immigrants out like all these people are just moving because we're displaced like where else are we supposed to go and we like to think of undocumented people as this isolated thing but we're and it's not they were part of a global phenomenon that's happening right now i think too you'll see your your comments reminded me of a, a somebody's protest sign that i saw somewhere online um that said something like if the u.s doesn't want refugees stop making them um and that you know that sort of like hit me because it, it made me realize i mean and then i knew this already but there, there's a reason why it's happening right and I, and i think it's also important to acknowledge that there's the history of the united states it's a really it's a really um intense history um it's really I mean, think if you think about Native Americans here, and, and I spent some time at Standing Rock, and for me, that was incredibly eye-opening because, you know, here I am being like, oh my God, they're building this fucking pipeline, and like, da-da-da, and, and being in a space where I sort of was like sat down and taught <laughs> and like reminded that like this has been going on for 500 years. This is not, this is not new. Um, don't think about this as like, this is happening right now in our time. This is crazy. This has been happening forever. Um, people fighting for their rights, people fighting for their land. Um, and I think Josie's right is that I think we're in a time where the United States is having to hold up a mirror to itself and really look at itself and dissect who it is, um, why it is the way that it is. Um, and it's really fascinating to watch and also horrifying. <laughs> um, but, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm only just wanted to make the point that, um, acknowledging um that me as somebody who's who identifies as mexicano and and you know i, I get told like you know you cross the border da, 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 these are the laws these are the rules this is not your country um you know if you if you go back far enough it is i'm indigenous to this land um and so it's incredibly ironic um but, it, it, you know, it's a conversation that, that continues to happen. You've both touched upon the fear that ICE installs on a day-to-day -day basis. And something that fear creates is a shadow world and a shadow economy for undocumented Americans. What is that experience like? Um, you know, it's interesting for me because, you know, uh, it's, I think like every undocumented person has a different um, experience with being undocumented. But like, honestly, when I was growing up, I grew up in Eastside San Jose. I lived in a community where everybody was undocumented. So I never I never really felt that kind of like that I was in the shadows or hiding. I just knew this is a matter of fact, like I thought everybody was undocumented. Right. And so. I never really experienced that. But I think for a lot of people, you know, and also because I live in California, specifically the Bay Area, which I, they're even there as an undocumented person, there's a certain privilege that I have to live in the area that's, you know, fairly liberal or, you know, uh, as opposed to living in, you know, a state that doesn't really 
allow undocumented people to be out like that. Um, so I think basically coming out of the shadows is this idea that you don't tell anybody that you're undocumented and you just live your life. Um, don't bother anyone and just, you know, just don't dare to make noise. And basically what coming out of the shadows became was this idea that undocumented people were actually telling people like, listen, I'm undocumented. I don't have, I'm, I'm unashamed about it because it's not my fault. And that coming out of shadows was this idea that more undocumented people were going to come out. And by doing that, we were creating a culture in which now we found each other, you know, that's why now that people are out, you know, me and Hell Day can communicate and be like, listen, we're, I'm undocumented too. You're undocumented too. That's so dope. What are you working on? Let's work together, you know? And I think that's what Coming Out of Shadows did is that you, a lot of, it made people realize, look, I'm not the only one. There's other people like me out here. Um, and that's what allowed people to build a sense of community and a sense of kind of mobilizing in that way. I, I've realized that um, being someone who's undocumented, growing up undocumented, you know, it's something that you don't talk about. You you take what you're given. You don't ask for more. You're quiet. You sit in the back. It's that sort of um, it's that sort of a uh, thing that happens that that I I hate now as an adult that I can like break that down and see that for what it was um, because it shaped my personality in so many ways. You know, I was known as this like super shy kid who like, you know, didn't have a lot of friends, um, didn't really like go out, you know, and, and I can see so much as to like how being undocumented played such a huge role in, in me being that personality. And it's a lot of unlearning that I have to do um, to, you know, understand that um i can take up space because this is space that i that is mine that belongs to me that i can that i can feel good about um and not be apologetic for anymore um so it's super interesting to see the shift and, and to be able to step outside of myself and be like whoa you used to be like this for this reason um and and you know now i feel super vocal and and it's because i'm able to meet people like you'll see online or like you know other folks um in the US that that are vocal as well. Um, and it's really empowering, you know, and, and, you know, I'm also queer and, and coming out as queer as like an 18 year old was a whole thing. And then, you know, on top of that, I feel like I'm coming out as undocumented as well. And the parallels are so interesting, because you think about, you know, as a queer person, that's, you know, when it's when it's hidden, when you're hiding that, it's it's this feeling of like, I know that there are other people out there like me, um, I see you, like, I know that you're there, but I can't say anything. And, and it's kind of the exact same thing with being undocumented. It's that, that same, like, I can't do anything right now at this moment until I feel like I, I feel empowered enough to come out and to like own this. Um, and I think that's where personally, uh, that's where I'm at now. Um, I feel like I've gotten incredibly vocal and I just want to like, you know, attribute that for sure to like people like Yossi, who I, I find incredibly empowering and, and makes me feel like I'm learning so much more about myself and, and how to present to the world differently. So you've both mentioned the importance of empowerment and struggling with mental health in the face of being called illegal, of being criminalized simply for existing. What do you do to take care of yourself? 
you know what this is where having a lot of undocumented friends is necessary and i think vital i think for me like every time something tragic happens about immigration i'll just throw a potluck and invite all my friends to my house and just be with each other i think what that's what makes me kind of like a sense of hope you know and i think as an artist for me like looking at people who are in the landscape creating work that um keeps me motivated or makes me feel like well at least i'm not alone you know at least somebody else is tackling that way because it could be a lot and I think from us I think from for me as a poet and as a writer that's what I wanted to do so that's why for me like I'm all about you know undocumented people have the right to feel joy undocumented people have the right to smile and be happy um, and that's why I'm very critical of people that want to do narratives about undocumented people and solely focus on the tragedy porn because I feel like undocumented people are so resilient and so powerful I think we need to capture more, more of those narratives because if you think about it, like what more power does a person have than to wake up to a country that tells you that they don't want you every day? They tell you, you don't want you. We don't want you. We don't want you here. But you still choose to go to work and you still choose to smile. You still chose to plan a birthday party. And I think that's something that I I really want to honor and I want to remind and document to people that, yeah, that, that, that's pretty neat. And you should allow yourself to pat yourself on the back and be like, listen, it was a good day. I did good today. So, yeah, I'm more interested in creating more narratives like that. So other undocumented people, you know, get a little mental break and undocumented people deserve to laugh. So that's why I try to be funny and stuff. That was really beautiful. You see. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Also, one thing that I want to touch on when it comes to the mental health thing is that not necessarily specific to undocumented people, but maybe more so in the Latinx community, is that I think talking about mental health is kind of it's kind of a strange thing. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, growing up, you know, when somebody like did have mental health issues, you know, people would say like, oh, está loquito or está loquita or whatever. Like there's no real conversation around what that is. And there's a lot of shame around um, seeing a therapist or like, you know, being able to talk about things like this um, to a professional. Um, and so that's been that's been a bit of a struggle for myself. Um, I don't really know the exact way that I would be able to like have that conversation with family. Not that it matters, I'm gonna do it anyway, but you know, personally I've been like looking for a therapist and, and hoping that I could like um, get past this like mental block that I have around what it means to even like go see a therapist um, because it's it's so much and and I can't even begin to describe to you how much it is it's this entire year is like it's a lot um, and you know we I'm fully aware that it's all a tactic and then and um, it's this kind of there's a quote and I want to say it's Audrey Lord that I think about a lot um, everything we do must contribute to the struggle because everything they're doing is grinding us into dust and we will not be ground. Um, and I love that quote so much because if it feels so true, you know, everything that, um, like Yossi said, like just your existence is like, um, get, getting so much just like, it's so pushed into the ground all the time. And how be how beautiful is it that we're still here? Our whole conversation here has really revolved around alternative narratives and a visionary future where immigrants are valued for more than just the capital they produce. What do you envision for a better future? What do you want to see in terms of legislation and society at large? You know, that's a very tricky question because I feel like as long as we don't 
if we don't address foreign policy, there's always going to be someone that's undocumented. If we don't address, you know, our kind of need for war and displacement, there's always going to be an undocumented person. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a, a longer vision into what the U.S. is. And yeah, I don't know what that necessarily would look like because we're so we're such a global power in that way you know so i think it's really looking at foreign policy and what we're doing in other countries that's contributing to the displacement of people i think that's the question of the century <laughs> uh, i don't i don't have an answer for that either i think that there are there are things that we can do that sort of help remedy situations in a certain way but not necessarily an overall um law or, or, or a piece of like our policy, you know, that'll, that'll just like fix everything. Um, I think for one, the dream act should be passed. Um, now, you know, ASAP, it, it's, it's, it's a big solution for a lot of people. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the conversation can continue and just going back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier is just this, this education piece around like, why is it that we are here? Why is it that this population is so big? of undocumented folks, what has the, you know, what role has the U.S. played in that? Um, and, and Yossi's right. It's, it's sort of, you know, being able to understand that, um, to, a, to a bigger degree, um, and, and start making policy from there. And I, and I also think it, it's fully about replacing, um, all the people in Congress or, or in politics that don't give a shit about us, um, and don't understand that, like, we're here and and only try to criminalize us or or you know feed other narratives that that aren't real and and being able to imagine a future where there is you know a, a group of people that are in power that actually are looking at the human element to things and and not interested in in, in money you know so much um but thinking about the human narrative period you know that's kind of a utopian idea but who knows maybe someday as we've discussed, discussions about undocumented immigration almost always center documented people. How undocumented immigration will affect the economy for documented people. How undocumented people exemplify the American dream. How undocumented people don't take welfare, don't take jobs, etc. How do we center and uplift undocumented voices in our activism? I think right now what's happening that I think which I would love to see as an undocumented person is for people to kind kind of pass the megaphone to actual undocumented people. I think right now what's happening is that in our collective imagination, we only see undocumented people as subjects and we still haven't allowed them to be agents of their own story. And what I mean by that is that people think that we are still in the 90s in which our parents came, right? And they needed help filling out applications and adapting to the culture. But the matter of fact is that most of us undocumented people that are now doing this activism, we actually were raised here we went to your schools we understand policy we speak the language we actually know um, how to nav navigate these systems so there really isn't any need for that kind of um, 
you know, that diversion in which undocumented people are not speaking for themselves. Um, and I think right now what I would love to see is people that have these platforms and who are allies, how are they opening up those platforms to place and centralize and uplift undocumented people? And I think as artists, I think that's one of the beautiful things that I, I want to do. You know, I think I one of the things that I've seen a lot is that I've gone to a lot of art shows and they're talking about immigration and the subject is undocumented people but I'm the undocumented person in the room and none of the artists are undocumented so I think for me like I want to be able as an artist take over that space and listen and say listen I can speak to this experience because it's mine and I think for me like that's the beautiful work that you know Hell Day is doing because I think we need to position ourselves in these places so people stop imagining us as these people that are kind of paralyzed by fear because we know we don't have that luxury we're actively trying to change these narratives and trying to really create something that reflects actual people that come from our, our background so i tell a lot of people if you let undocumented person edit your video i assure you that you're going to catch the nuance and the universe the the universality uh, of our experience yeah i think there's a lot of really important work that's happening already in the country um that's led by undocumented people like myself and yosimar in our in our you know respective cities and and the events that we put on and um, making sure that we're centering the undocumented voice. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we do, um, so I, I co-lead an organization called We The Dreamers um, here in Portland, Oregon, and um, we put on events that are about that, and it's all through the lens of art. And so it's very specific, um, but it's it's been, it's been really cool to see that happen. I met with another organization that was doing something similar um, they wanted to meet with us, um, and, and we did. And I was kind of shocked to hear that there was no undocumented people at the table, no DACA recipients, and a, a big lack of people of color leading the whole um, project. I called them out on it, you know, and, and suggested strongly that if they're going to move forward with this project that's about DACA recipients, they need to be talking to the DACA recipients um, because that's, that's the way that, you know, um, things can be done so much better. You know, I would imagine that, you know, in a lot of different in a lot of big cities in the U.S., there's a lot of stuff happening like this already. Um, and, you know, I have a huge <laughs> I have a huge desire to go down to California because I see all the cool stuff Yossi's working on. Um, and I, and I want to be a part of that. Um, being up here in, in Portland, Oregon is fine. And there's there's a lot of like progressive folks for sure. Um, but but it's not the same as as an event that that you know is like in a state that's that's so much more um latinx um and and just brown in general um and so i think finding those events and and finding the organizations and and the people that are leading the work um and following their moves i think is a really really good way to go about finding spaces that are centering the undocumented narrative. Do you have any message for our undocumented listeners? Um, I just want to say that you're amazing. I love you. And I do this work because I believe that, you know, we only have each other. And um, if you ever feel that, you know, it's, it's too much to consume, I would urge you to just blog out of Facebook and go look at videos with cute cats and stuff and you know be around your loved ones and you know celebrate the moment and celebrate yourself because you're amazing yeah I would say um, you know to any undocumented people that are listening um, that don't already think this way that um, you don't owe anybody anything 
find yourself a community, find yourself a group of people that celebrate you regardless of your of your status. Okay, great. So where can folks find you online and where can they find your work? You can check out my website, yosimar.com, Y-O-S-I-M-A-R.com. Or you can add me on Instagram, yosirey, Y-O-S-I-R-E-Y. You can find me online as well. Uh, My website's eldaydelacruz.com. That's H-E-L-D-A-Y-D-E-L-A-C-R-U-Z. Um, and then on Instagram, uh, you can follow me at wethedreamers.pdx. Thank you both so much for coming on today and sharing your stories. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Of course. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Brand New Congress on Facebook and Instagram at Brand New Congress, on Twitter at Brand New 535, and check out our website, brandnewcongress.org. If you can, please donate or volunteer. We are a truly grassroots organization by the people for the people. So every donation counts, every helping hand counts, especially now that the primaries are heating up. Finally, make sure to subscribe to the brand new podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 